Hello and welcome to the Tequeria Podcast, a production of Points of Presence Media. On this week's podcast, we talk about one of the oldest and most important civic events in the United States, the census. Every decade, the government seeks to count every person who lives in the country to determine political representation through apportioning and financing critical infrastructure for things like hospitals, schools, and roads for the next 10 years. Counting children, for example, even the recently born, is vital because it gives them political and economic power. An accurate decennial census is essential for anyone to get a reliable picture of child, family, and community well-being across the country. It's also essential for the millions of young people and families whose well-being and opportunities in life are often bolstered by public programs. Children zero to four are at the greatest risk of being undercounted, and many, many programs that support families, young children, and communities depend upon an accurate count. So while the census is supposed to be apolitical in theory, it never is. Trillions of money and power are at stake. And this particular census, administered by the Trump administration, has been, are you surprised, more combative than usual. They sought most scandalously through legal challenges over the last few years to make it harder for immigrants and people of color to be counted. One way they did this was through a memo in the summer of 2020, which sought to allow the president to ask the Secretary of Commerce, who is in charge of providing the census numbers to the president, to create two different sets of census data one with and one without undocumented immigrants. But counting immigrants as part of the census has been done since the country's founding. Many experts say this latest attempt is a logical extension of the current conservative Republican interest in racist anti-immigration policy. Many lawsuits from civil rights organizations and city, county, and state governments have sought to block them. Some of the organizations leading the fight include the American Civil Liberties Union, the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and Latino Justice. All represent communities that stand to lose representatives in Congress. The census has also been a topic of conversation in the Tequeria community Slack boards over the past year, with people worried about the effect a lower census number will have on their future. Some worked as enumerators, going door-to-door, meeting people at their home to make sure they were counted. The census is important to me because I'm an immigrant, I'm a part of this community, and I count. The census is important to me so that state and federal funds are allocated fairly. The census is important to me because because it assures enough educational and medical resources. The census is important to me because I'm a daughter from an immigrant family and we all deserve to be counted. The census is important to me because it impacts how about $600 billion is allocated. Because as a mother, I want my children to have a different outlook of who they can become in the future. The census is important to me because as a person of color, I am part of the minority group accounting for a large part of our population and we matter too. Because as a Christian, I believe every human being is created by God and in His image. Therefore, everyone counts. 
and should be loved and taken care of by their neighbors. The census is important to me because this is actually the very first year that there will be a same-sex couples option for the relationship status question. As an immigrant and a new mother, the census is important to me so my family can become part of my community's demographics. Our guests include Jose Perez, the Chief Legal Officer of Latino Justice, USC History Professor Natalia Molina, St. Louis University Professor Onesimo Nes Sandoval, an expert in demographic and computational spatial science, and finally, the National Director of Civil Rights at the ACLU, Dale Ho. A few weeks ago, Dale argued before the U.S. Supreme Court and defined how and why immigrant communities in the United States have been crucial to its democratic ideals for nearly 250 years. A quick note that most of our conversations happened right before the end of Trump's term, so when Dale and others say this administration, that's whom they're referring to. On November 30th, Dale Ho, the director of civil rights at the American Civil Liberties Union, argued on behalf of a group of nonprofits representing communities of color, including immigrants, alongside counsel representing state and local governments. Both were against the Trump administration's midsummer census memorandum. Ho and company argued the Constitution prevented the president from even receiving that type of separated data and should be rejected outright. Opposing counsel said it was too early for the court to decide on census data since the government didn't have the final numbers, but that when they could, the president had the right to make that request. On December 17th, the conservative majority court agreed with the Trump administration that it was too early to decide on the case and threw it out, with the three liberal justices dissenting. That gave Trump and company a month to receive the data before it turned over census administration to Joe Biden and his team. But on January 13th, the census announced they had stopped working on the Trump request. According to an NPR exclusive from reporter Hansi Lo Wang, people inside the bureau described senior career officials who did not want to reveal their name for fear of retribution, telling people to stop working on creating an option to separate undocumented immigrants from the census data. This followed the public release of a memo on January 12th by Commerce Department Inspector General Peggy Gustafson, saying multiple whistleblowers revealed they were pressured by the Trump-appointed Census Bureau Director Stephen Dillingham to produce the report as fast as possible, to give it to Trump before inauguration to create political chaos. Gustafson said such a move would be indefensible and, quote, be misinterpreted, misused, or otherwise tarnish the Bureau's reputation. Ultimately, they did not go through with it. On January 20th, one of Joe Biden's first executive orders reversed Trump's summer action memorandum, effectively ending it. But as we'll find out, Trump and his tactics already likely caused massive harm to the counting. On December 20th, the census released its population estimates, finding at least 330 million people lived in the country as of April 1st, 2020. Based on records of deaths and births, health records, and immigration estimates, the calculation is used as a check on the actual count submitted in person, over the phone, or online by each household, and then reviewed by census workers. And that estimate, and how it was likely affected by Trump, is where we started our conversation with Dale Ho. Hi, everybody. Today, we're uh, happy to have on the show Dale Ho, the director of the American Civil Liberties Union Voting Rights Project, 
the person who supervises the ACLU's voting rights litigation nationwide. He's a top lawyer who's been working on civil rights litigation for a long time, including working for the NAACP. And he's also a native of California, which we'll get to later on. Dale, thank you so much for being on. Thanks so much for having me on. Before we get to the specific questions about the argument that you put before the Supreme Court and the case itself, let's talk about the demographic analysis estimates that were released. Can you explain why or why not the numbers may affect your case? I'm guessing not. And then the follow-up question to that is, will the processing anomalies that people have been talking about due to the COVID-19 and to the Trump administration's actions uh, to speed up the count against many career civil servants' wishes affect the final count? So I can start with the, your second question first, because I think that's, uh, it, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's immediate, it's changing all the time. You know, um, the census um, this um, year uh, has faced, I think, unprecedented challenges because of the COVID-19 pandemic started behind schedule. Um, and then the outreach process um, was delayed. Um, it was difficult because of social distancing and um, folks not wanting to answer their doors more than usual. And then it got cut short by the administration. And as, as, as best as we can tell, it was cut short by the administration because the administration knew that if we had a complete outreach period, that would take longer and the data would come in sometime next year during the next administration. And the Trump administration wanted to be able to control the data um, and specifically to do so, so they could jam through this policy of excluding undocumented immigrants from the census count. Um, if, it, if it took until late January or beyond, then the incoming administration could reverse that policy. And that's what this administration didn't want to do. Um, the, the catch is though, they, they rammed everything through as fast as they could, but then the Census Bureau ran into what they're describing as data anomalies, they're saying that these issues aren't anything really unusual or out of the ordinary, but um, it's going to take a few months to sort it out. News reports from NPR and the Washington Post in December came out with an estimate of the number of those anomalies. They found a document leak provided to the House Oversight and Reform Committee, which is controlled by Democrats, saying there are at least one million records affected because of problems with COVID and other challenges and possibly millions more. The reports say these data anomalies are from people living in group settings, including prisoners and college students. So we may end up being in the next administration before we get those um, um, preliminary you know, census numbers anyway, and um, uh, uh, it may just throw a whole a monkey wrench into their plans to exclude undocumented immigrants and they will have ramp through the processing period, cut, cut the outreach period short for no reason, ultimately. Let's talk about the uh, Trump administration's possible separation and removal of undocumented immigrants and their argument you know, to take them away from the total population census numbers. Can you take us through the process of how you and the ACLU got involved in the case and how this case follows the other ones brought by the Trump administration uh, in the last couple of years? One of, you know, I think you were involved in most of them. The one was, I think, was Fish versus Kobach, where you want to challenge that required documentation for voter registration. Please take us through those last couple of years and how this is the latest and a part of that whole legal argument. 
I mean, we know everyone I'm sure who's listening knows about this administration's, you know, policies of xenophobia and exclusion of and scapegoating of immigrant communities, you know, claiming that there uh, there's illegal voting happening by non-citizens and uh, uh, all of the policies at the, you know, the border, family separation, et cetera. I, I think the best way to understand this administration is as a reaction to some of the demographic changes that the country is undergoing and an effort to prevent them from, um, you know, not only continuing, but also having any effect on the distribution of political power in this country. And the first, I think, effort by the administration to tie, tie all these things together was uh, an attempt to put a citizenship question on the census, something that we haven't had in 70 years, because um, survey experts, the Census Bureau itself has repeatedly said that, you know, if you want an accurate count of the, of the population, you don't put a question on there that is going to drive people away, that's going to make people um, scared to fill out their census forms. So we haven't had a question like that for 70 years in order to make sure that we get an accurate count. The Trump administration decides to put one on there, even though the Census Bureau tells them that their best estimate is six and a half million people will not respond to the census if you put that question on there. And our analysis was that states like California, New York, Illinois, Florida, Texas would all lose a seat in Congress. And so that's how I got involved in the case. While the introduction of a citizenship question shocked many and forced organizations such as the ACLU to take it seriously enough to ramp up lawsuits, census law experts believe from the beginning the attempt was so outlandish it was unlikely to be approved by the Supreme Court. That's even with the court's increasingly conservative bent. In the latest edition of the U.S. Parties and Elections in America textbook, editors Mark Brewer and Sandy Maisel show how the Supreme Court has played an essential part in the last 100 years in maintaining at least a semblance of fairness in apportionment and gerrymandering battles. But the big court has also appeared to take one or two steps back, even when it has taken steps forward toward justice. In a 1962 case called Baker v. Carr, the court ruled in favor of forcing legislators in Tennessee to redraw lines after not being touched in 60 years. By that time, Congress members, mostly white, represented up to 100 times more people than those in other districts, often from different ethnic communities. In subsequent years, the court defined, positively for fairness advocates, the accepted principle of apportionment as a one-person, one-vote president where, quote, seats in the same body should have roughly the same population so that each person's vote counts equally. But the court has also, in the years since, allowed legally viable but manipulated gerrymandering. In 1987, the court ruled that gerrymandering could be a, quote, violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, while also judging in separate cases that some state legislatures' obvious political actions during redistricting could still be legal. That's why it's been more challenging for legislators in states with consistent majorities of conservatives like Texas to draw districts that best and most fairly represent their population. To get a better sense of what others thought about the citizenship question battle, I reached out to Jose Perez, the Deputy General Counsel at Latino Justice PRLDEF, formerly known as the Puerto Rican Legal Defense and Education Fund. This New York-based national civil rights organization has been around for decades. 
I serve as the legal director. I've been here now 14 years, and this is my second go-round. Um, uh, 2010, I did census work, and we work with national partners like NALEO, the Educational Fund, the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials, Hispanic Federation. Jose told me that the Trump administration argument for its citizenship question was not so different from the types of views you'd hear in hard conservative states that have benefited from those types of legal loopholes for years. The only difference is that Trump's team's actions were so obvious, crude, and based on a dubious legal pretext that they may have hurt their chances in the process. Directing the Census Bureau to add a citizenship question to the census. Given this dynamic, and particularly this president and the rhetoric and the policies and the harsh anti-immigrant, pro-immigration enforcement, uh, arrest them, detain them, deport them. So now they want to add a citizenship question to the census on the pretext. And, and again, this has been demonstrated now after the fact in court records um, that Commerce Secretary had somebody from the Justice Department voting rights section write to him saying they needed to collect the citizenship information so that they could enforce the Voting Rights Act. Civil rights groups or voting rights groups like Latino Justice and MALDEF and others like laugh at this assertion or take it with a big grain of salt because we know this Justice Department under prior AG Sessions, Attorney General Barr, they have a voting rights section, but they have not brought an affirmative voting rights case in their entire three and a half years that they've been in office. So this pretext that they needed this information in order to determine who were citizens, in order to engage in voting rights enforcement was purely pretextual. And information has come out after the fact in lawsuits challenging the addition of the citizenship question um, that partisan political operatives or strategists came up and there are records, a top level strategist who passed away, I think he was in North Carolina, but his daughter found these discs and records and disseminated this to at groups and said, one of the things we'll say, you know, if we, we raise this citizenship question and add this, what will that mean? That will diminish non-white participants from being counted and thereby enhancing or improving the number of, say, white males, i.e. who are more likely to vote Republican or register and vote as Republicans than folks of color or immigrants or naturalized citizens. So clearly there were racial connotations and a blatant attempt to target disempower and disenfranchise Latinos. It turns out that adding the citizenship question two years ago was only one part of a larger strategic plan to undercount the Latinx population and other people of color. According to demographer and St. Louis University professor Ness Sandoval, among the other things they did, they ignored proposed changes to the census that had been in the works for years and sought to recognize the ethnic background of growing non-white communities. He explains here what happened and why it's crucial. You would do experiments to see how people understood the question and, and that they would change their responses based on a word here and there. And, and so when the Obama administration had proposed changes to the census, this was based on at least five years of experimentation of questionnaire design and saying, okay, by changing these questions, this is the worst case scenario, this is the best case scenario. And so I don't think people realize like Hispanic was supposed to be a racial category in 2020. And it had gone through extensive field testing, at least five years, maybe seven years, eight years of field testing officially 
to get the to get the wording correctly. And then they added a second category for Middle Eastern and North Africa as a racial classification. And that was supposed to happen. And then the Trump administration decided we're going to throw that out at the very last minute. And they went back and changed the question without any experimentation in the field. And so it's going to be interesting to see how people responded to the race question. Uh So they took Hispanic out as a race and they took North African out as a race. But the way they asked it makes no sense based on what what was supposed to be in its place. But I think that was a decision that they said that they wanted Hispanics just to be an ethnic category. I'm going to present with you a very objective debate of this, what was, what was at stake here. About 50% of Hispanics, maybe a little bit more, identify themselves as white. Okay. So the question then became for the census is, well, we want a more accurate understanding who truly believes themselves to be white and who truly believes themselves to be Hispanic. And so the 2020 census was designed to force Hispanics to make a couple choices. Are you white? Are you Hispanic or are you biracial? And so this is why that field testing was very important because for a lot of Puerto Ricans, if you force them to choose, they're Puerto Rican. If given an option, they may say, well, I'm white and I'm Puerto Rican. If you talk to Cubans, without a doubt, Cubans in Miami are going to say, I'm Cuban. I'm not white. If, for, if they're forced to choose, they're going to say that they're Cuban. So I think that there was a fear in the administration that many of the whites, white Hispanics, were going to pick the identity of Hispanic over white and that the number of whites were going to go down simply based on the field experiments that were happening, especially like with the Mexicans on the border, Mexican-American. Yeah, they, many of them identify as white. But if forced to choose, are you white or are you Mexican-American or are you Tejano? They're Tejano. If you force them to choose, like, well, I'm not white. I'm Tejano, right? But then they should have changed the other categories because what happened in the white category They went back to ethnicity. Are you German, French, English? But they never said Mexican, right? They they, they, they took out those signals. How many Mexicans, for example, said, well, they're really talking about European whites now. And I'm just going to mark myself as other. And that's why the census got into this, because they're like, what is this other race? And I think it's like 96% of those who marked other were Mexican. And so like, well, let's just give them their category then. Like if, if, this, if they think they're another race, let's just give them that category. I think people are shocked that people from North Africa and the Middle East are classified as white, technically, officially. If you're Egyptian, you're white. If you're Moroccan, you're white. If you're from Jordan, you're white. And, and people are shocked. I'm like, no, that, that's, that's not right. I'm like, oh, look at the census from 2010. It says right there in North Africa, Middle East, you're white. And so those people who identify in those categories will say, well, Ness, I I am not treated as a white person. Look at my skin. Look at my hair. Look at my face.
To add more complexity to the census's goal to provide an accurate account of the people in this country, the Trump administration cut funds to it midway. These cuts affected areas that needed to recruit and hire more enumerators that were a good cultural match for their communities. A report from Mother Jones magazine in 2018 found many people in Latinx communities failed to mail back their census forms in 2010 if, as the authors wrote, they ever received them in the first place. For example, as many as 27% of residents in an East Fresno, California neighborhood were not counted on the first try in that census. Poor cultural or ethnic representation in the face-to-face counting of people has always been a factor, even in communities you'd expect wouldn't be affected. USC American history professor Natalia Molina, who recently received the MacArthur Fellowship Award for her work on immigrants, told me a story over the phone about how poor cultural understanding likely hurt the proper counting of people in her family in Los Angeles. You know, you're having census workers go out to people that might be very different than them and have to make assessments and have to make judgments as they're filling out these forms. Um, I'm writing a book. I'm currently writing a book on uh, Mexican restaurants in Los Angeles in the mid-1950s and 60s. My grandmother started one of them and I call them urban anchors. And it's a way of showing how immigrant social networks work. So I've been doing all this research on her. I've ne- I never met her. She died before I was born. And so I've been, uh, even though she was my grandmother, I've had to employ historical research. And I looked up her census records. My grandmother did not speak English. My grandmother did not know how to sign her name. Uh, neither did my grandfather. And they were not married till later in their relationship. And yet this uh, census worker uh, wrote that they spoke English, wrote that they were married, you know, did all these different, you know, made all these kind of judgment calls. So then I actually looked up the census record, the census worker, and it turns out, you know, he was the child of immigrants himself. He was German American. Uh, He was from a a very different part of town in LA. And so you can imagine him going into this part of town in LA never probably never having met Mexicans and then you know both of them trying to communicate with one another so there's all these little moments like that in the census where you see people uh making judgments a lot of times instead of you know when they write what language did people speak they would write Spanish or Mexican and then somebody would have to cross it out and write Spanish and this was you know 1940. Hey, everybody, I'm taking some time here in the middle of the podcast to remind you to share it with friends and family and to follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. More followers and activity on those sites help us get more attention from them. Just look for the Tequeria podcast and you can also look for me at Formoso on Twitter and Jay Formoso on Instagram. Since we're doing reminders, don't forget to check out the Tequeria community's online event page. Thanks. Ultimately, the ACLU and other organizations and states won against President Trump's citizenship question in 2019. But as Dale Ho explains, that question was only the beginning of a legal fight over the census they've engaged with ever since. And that came to a head with the exclusion memorandum. The effect on um, diluting the representation and political power of immigrant communities you know, way that, you know, I think um, violates basic constitutional norms. People are supposed to have... Um, everyone in this country is supposed to be represented in Congress and states are supposed to get seats in Congress that are proportional to their populations. So if you're putting a question on there that's specifically intended to deter people from participating in the census, that's a direct attack 
on states with large immigrant populations and immigrant communities themselves. So we, we, we've, we um, filed a case challenging that, um, and I argued that case in the Supreme Court, and we were fortunate to win um, last year. But then this year, the administration came back, and this is another case that just went up to the Supreme Court a couple of weeks ago um, uh, with, a, with, a, with a new policy, which was going to um, seek to exclude undocumented immigrants altogether from the count that's used to divvy up representation in Congress. Now, that's something that has never happened in American history. We have always counted every person in the United States for purposes of representation in Congress. Doesn't matter if you're an adult or a, a, a minor, doesn't matter if you're registered to vote or not, doesn't matter if you're a citizen or not, and it doesn't matter if you have legal status or not. Um, every human um, is counted, it's in the Constitution. The Constitution says that states receive representation based on the whole number of persons in each state, persons, not citizens, not voters, not adults. Um, so it's, it's, I mean, it's really one of the most, it's maybe the most unconstitutional thing I've ever encountered as a lawyer. Um, we sued, we won in the trial court, um, and then it went up to the Supreme Court and it was argued um, two weeks ago. Um, but this is, again, just another attack on um, immigrant communities and states with um, large numbers of, of, of uh, immigrants and people of color um, to try to dilute their political power and forestall the ele electoral and political consequences of the demographic changes that our country is seeing. Knowing that the political and economic future of immigrants of color were at stake because of these legal attacks, groups like Latino Justice worked on their briefs to support the major lawsuits against the Trump exclusion memo. These briefs are called amicus briefs, which is Latin for friends of the court. And Latino Justice was one of more than 25 amicus briefs from civil rights firms, apportionment experts, and businesses. According to the Brennan Law Center, the scope of the briefs was impressive. Michael Rosen, a scholar of apportionment law, argued in his brief, they said, that the 39th U.S. Congress, quote, deliberately designed the 14th Amendment to require an inclusive apportionment basis of all people, regardless of their citizenship status. A brief from the National Congress of American Indians said, Indians not taxed are the, quote, only people the Constitution's text excludes from apportionment, and undocumented people are not, nor are they analogous to Indians not taxed. In that brief, the groups say types of legal fiction, quote, cannot justify the exclusion of unauthorized immigrants who are actual living, breathing persons. And using the words of Judge Elmer Scipio Dundee in the early 19th century, quote, Webster describes a person as a living soul, a self-conscious being, a moral agent, especially a living human being, a man, woman, or child, an individual of the human race. There was even a brief from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, which said invalidating undocumented immigrants would hurt the church's ability to provide medical and nutritional help to poor communities because they receive millions of dollars just for that purpose. When the Trump memorandum came out in July, we denounced it, looked to take legal action. Other folks really mobilized. We decided what role could we best play? Latino justice, we're a voice for the Latino community nationally. What role could we play? And we thought that one of the ways that um, decisions from these three judge panels, they don't normally go through the intermediate appellate level from the district court to the circuit court of appeals, then to the Supreme Court. It goes right from these three judge panels and the, the district court right to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court took the case. 
once you knew the, the, the memorandum came out, you knew there was going to be lawsuits. You knew that this was going to go to the Supreme Court. So you start thinking ahead. You start planning. Well, we want to be in a position to weigh in and comment and provide our perspective. We filed an amicus to further shed light on the issues and help educate the court and presenting the perspective of the Latino community. Now, you could say some of the plaintiffs you know, involve immigrants' rights groups or other groups. Um, yes, but we wanted to provide a, a, our unique perspective on this. And I was pleased on two points on, on that, um, which I believe was very well received. And again, we kind of rebutted some of the legal arguments that the Trump administration said, and we countered some of these arguments. And so the attorney general's office, the New York attorney general was one of the groups that sued and was kind of now defending this decision, um, cited to our brief and their brief. So they had seen, we had shared a copy of it. Um, and they looked at it and liked some of the information and arguments, and they kind of cited to this. The other, the lead lawyer is a brilliant uh, voting rights lawyer by the name of Dale Ho. His closing argument, he cited to his closing and his summation, the Latino Justice Amicus brief says, and he talked about what immigrants do in terms of being homeowners and paying taxes and contributing not millions, not billions, but trillions of dollars to our gross national product. So I knew that our brief hit the mark. We made a compelling argument that clearly our colleagues cited to it. The Attorney General in challenging this memorandum also cited to it. In closing, Your Honors, uh, no court, no Congress, and no executive branch before now has ever thought that undocumented immigrants could be excluded from the whole number of persons in each state. In 1868, the 14th Amendment based apportionment on persons, not citizens, specifically to embrace the entire immigrant population and to secure, to secure ratification by states with large immigrant populations. And in 1929, Congress mandated apportionment on total population, the plain meaning of which does not permit exclusions for immigration status. While the president may have some discretion in borderline cases, he does not have authority to erase millions of state residents from the apportionment based solely on unlawful immigration status. As the Latino Justice Amicus Brief notes, undocumented immigrants contribute $1 trillion in GDP, $20 billion in federal taxes, 80% are essential workers, one in four are homeowners and pay property taxes. They're our neighbors, our coworkers, and our family members. They are usual residents under any plausible definition of that term. I listened to your argument before the court, and you brought up the historical present. As you said, it's the first time in American history that this has been done. Maybe you could talk about the specific examples you brought up. I believe there was, I mean, there's the 1929 law. You mentioned 1790, right? Which, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about extremely old laws that are at the core of the Constitution, at the core of the country itself. That's the time of the founders and when they were thinking about it. And there was the problem of slavery and the three-fifths compromise and how slaves were considered three-fifths of a person. And yet that eventually changed. I think it was four years or three years after the Civil War, right? So mm -hmm. uh, if you can go, go through some of those timelines in history and how it's so, I guess it seems so obvious to all of us, except the administration, that counting every single body is part of what the census is all about. Yeah. So there were three there were three moments in American history where this question was considered. And every time, whether it was the founders or Congress, always decided that every person is going to get counted with some limited limited exceptions. Um, 
So first is at the founding. The one thing I will say is it's really interesting to me that conservatives complain about this, right? They say it doesn't make any sense to count people who aren't citizens or people who aren't undocumented immigrants, uh, who are undocumented immigrants, but they, you know, conservatives claim to love history. They claim to love to be true to the intention of the founders, right? Um, you know, they sometimes call themselves constitutional conservatives, but when it comes to this issue, when it's contrary to their policy goals, suddenly you see some conservatives saying, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe we shouldn't worry about what the founders thought. We should think about what makes sense. It's really, you know, kind of galling to see the hypocrisy. But, okay, three times this, this, this issue was considered. First was at the founding, um, um, and then a few years later when the first census was taken in 1790. The founders said, um, we could do this based on, you know, uh, 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 voters, Right, um, and at the time, remember, for the most part, it's only white men who have a certain amount of property, right? But different states have different rules on voters, and they wanted a uniform rule. So they said we got to do it based on on um, the number of people in each state. But we're going to make two carve outs: one for so, quote Indians not taxed. That's the language of the original Constitution, and that was meant to reflect that some Native Americans who you know, lived on tribal lands, weren't really a part of the, you know, um, American political community. They were part of a separate sovereign um, and so wouldn't be counted in a state's representation. And then three-fifths of other persons, right? That's the, that's the euphemism for slaves, right? So, so Southern states with large enslaved populations, they're going to get some credit for those populations, even though they don't, the governments there obviously don't represent enslaved people and do not, you know, look out for their interests. But that's the compromise that's made because the northern states, you know, decide to, 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 to give the southern states some political power. But then that gets reversed three years after the Civil War, as you were noting. In 1868, the 14th Amendment, this is the second time the issue is considered. Congress is debating, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to do voters? Are we going to do citizens? What? And some northerners um, wanted it to be voters because they thought if states got representation based on their number of voters, that might push some Southern states to expand voting rights to formerly enslaved persons, right? Um, that, event, that proposal eventually gets rejected. And, and the reason, and this ties directly into the controversies today, is because there were a lot of, at the time, immigrants in Northern states, um, like Irish, you know, and other kinds of, you know, Catholic immigrants who, weren't citizens and couldn't vote in a lot of those states. And so the argument went, you know, Massachusetts, New York, these are states that currently have a lot of representation in Congress based on their non-voting immigrant populations. We can't strip them of their representation. They're not gonna favor the 14th Amendment, which remember the 14th Amendment is critical. That's what provides equal protection of the law for everyone, regardless of race. It's what makes everyone born on American soil a United States citizen, right? Um, um, and, and so the compromise is made. Look, we're not going to push the South on voting rights for um, former slaves. What we're going to do is um, to get the 14th Amendment passed and ensure those principles of equality get enshrined in the Constitution. We're going to um, do it based on persons, not voters. But the, the good side of that is all immigrants are getting counted, right, in the Northeast. On September 17th, 1787, delegates to the Constitutional Convention signed our nation's founding document in Philadelphia. 
To better understand the Constitution, 48 students from 12 Pennsylvania and California high schools traveled to the Supreme Court of the United States in December 2006. They discussed the origins, nature, and importance of the 14th Amendment with Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. My question is, what does equal protection under the law mean? What does due process mean? Why do we have the 14th Amendment, and what would we do, what would we lose if we didn't have it? The Equal Protection Clause is one of the two clauses in the 14th Amendment that's best known, and it provides that no state shall deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. And the Due Process Clause, which immediately precedes the Equal Protection Clause, reads, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Now, why do we have that 14th Amendment guaranteeing due process and equal protection. Did the original Constitution contain either provision? Indeed, there was a due process clause in the Fifth Amendment reading, just like the one in the 14th Amendment, and nor shall any person be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That's in the Fifth Amendment. But there was no counterpart to the Equal Protection Clause in the original Constitution. And isn't that strange when the instrument, the document that started it all before the Constitution was the Declaration of Independence in 1776 that said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So it was the starting premise at the birth of our nation that all persons are created equal. And yet, there's not a word about equality in the Constitution that's sent out for ratification in 1787. And why do you suppose that? If so, why don't we have an equality guarantee in the Constitution until 1868, yes? Wasn't it true that many state constitutions already contained provisions for uh, equality of all citizens? Some states may have. Certainly all states did not, yes? Justice Ginsburg, didn't, wasn't there argument over the legality of slavery in the new nation that was to be created, and didn't the framers not want to address the issue, so they left the issue of equality up to states as the previous? That is exactly right. The word that is never used in the Constitution is slavery, but it was the burning problem. And in the original Constitution has certain imperfections. One of them is in the very first article, 
the slave trade was allowed to continue until the year 1808. Another that perhaps is not as well known, but should be, is the Fugitive Slave Clause that was in Article 4 of the Constitution. It doesn't use the word slavery, but it says, in effect, that if any person held in service in one state escapes into another, say, a slave escapes from Virginia into Massachusetts, then the state of Massachusetts would be bound to deliver up that party to the person who claims to be the owner. So our original Constitution doesn't have any equality provision in it because some humans were held in bondage by other humans. Third time we consider this is in 1929 when Congress passed a new Census Act. They were thinking about the fact that there had been all these political controversies about the census and how to divvy up representation in the House. Um, and they decided we need to make this, this something that happens automatically every 10 years. We don't want to have to recalculate how many seats in Congress every state's going to get. And, uh, you know, the, the proposal is to do it based on people, not citizens, again, because that's consistent with what the Constitution requires. And some people stand up and say, hey, we got a lot of immigrants because the 1920s, remember, this is a time, large immigration um, 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 to the country and then a real nativist xenophobic backlash to that. The first, you know, some, not the first, but some really, really restrictive immigration policies get passed in the 1920s. And some members of Congress, they stand up and say, look, there are millions of people in this country who are here unlawfully. And if we divvy up Congress based on persons instead of citizens or lawful status, you're going to be giving people who are here without lawful status representation in Congress. And the response overwhelmingly from Congress in 1929 was, so what? That's what the Constitution requires. It doesn't matter if you have the right paperwork. You're a person. You're in a state. You get representation. That state gets representation because that state's responsible for you and represents you. Um, that state gets representation in Congress. So every time Congress has thought about this, um, from the framers to 1929, um, the decision was always made. Everyone's going to be counted, um, regardless of immigration status, regardless of lawful status. And um, what Trump wants to do and what nativists today want to do is just incredibly radical, something that we've just never done in our history. According to Molina, the history of the 19th and early 20th century immigration shows that U.S. courts did uphold the one-person, one-vote norm as a census rubric, even as life as an undocumented person around that time was quite difficult. Like today, people were treated differently based on their skin color closest to white. So when you're talking about uh, ethnic whites coming over, um, you're talking about two different groups. You're talking about... Uh, Northern Europeans and then Eastern and Southern Europeans. And even within those groups at that point, you're talking about like the late uh, 19th century, you're talking about the early 20th century, before 1924. And in the first wave, you see a lot of people like from England coming more from the North and more Anglo-Saxon Protestants and a, and a need for immigrants. Again, 
uh, once we, when we really need immigrants, there's really not these kinds of complaints about immigrants. And then you see that immigration shifting to Southern and Eastern Europeans, Italians, Irish, Greeks, Jews. And then you see more scrutiny over the kinds of um, immigrants that are coming. That's when you start having uh, public health testing at Ellis Island, where you're looking at them for like ringworm or trachoma. And if they're pregnant, you send them back because they won't be good workers. They're being medically screened to be good workers. When we say we're a nation of immigrants, Statue of Liberty, at the base of that Statue of Liberty was a public health station that said, uh, you're a little hunchback, uh, you're pregnant, uh, you're a little you know uh, cloudy no we don't want to accept you and so there was already screening there of immigrants uh, but once they were here what we need to remember is these immigrants were what uh, one historian Tom Gugliamo calls they were white by law they were automatically eligible for citizenship because they were ethnically racially determined to be white and so there wasn't that kind of contestation. I will also note that Mexicans were also, they're the largest Latino immigrant group at this point, which is one of the ways that they're continued to allow to, to immigrate. And that's because of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, when Mexico, you know, one third of Mexico was acceded to the US in the US-Mexico War. But what is also different at this time period is that undocumented doesn't exist as a category in the same way. Uh, we don't have numerical limits on immigration in 1890 when, you know, uh, the, the English immigrants are coming in 1910 when Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants are coming and they're also uh, uh, seen as inferior immigrants. Um, and even though they're seen that way and even though they're regulated, they're not seen as undocumented whether or not they have papers, whether or not they overstay a visa, because we don't have numerical limits on immigrants in the same way. We have, you know, we start developing laws around public charge. Uh, we start, you know, worrying about uh, that our, our eugenic stock, our people of the right eugenic stock, might they be mentally inferior? But it's not until we have the 1924 Immigration Act that people are seen as undocumented. According to Professor Molina, life as an undocumented immigrant for certain peoples has also always been severely affected by how the United States uses the census at the time. We have seen the census used against immigrants and against uh, Americans of immigrant descent before. So we have seen the ways in which the census was used to help je send Japanese Americans to internment camps. We have seen the ways in which after slavery ended, the census uh, became you know, very uh, interested in people's mental ability. You know, one of the arguments, or actually before slavery ended, we have seen uh, while people were debating slavery and whether slavery was justified that starting the 1840 census, they counted uh, who was quote unquote, quote, uh, insane or an idiot, unquote. Uh, and this was used as propaganda to make sure that people stayed enslaved as if uh, blacks would not be able to govern themselves. Yeah, it's amazing to you to, to think about the scope of history and where we are and how far this administration is pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable constitutionally in terms of norms and values. So let's talk about the, the oral argument of what happened two weeks ago um, and a couple of specific things that I brought up out of it that I was trying to understand and I think were really interesting. 
Um, so there's the attempt to create a difference in how the census describes a person, right? The Trump administration wants to define it as close, I think, what seems from my understanding to the definition of a citizen as they can. Why do they want to do that? And why does the ACLU and other organizations say that that's a wrong argument? When they take these positions, they want to say that we the people means only, you know, if they could get away with it, what they would want to say is that we the people means citizens, right? The people of the United States means only people who are in fact United States citizens. But that's, that's just, a, a, I think, a real, real radical kind of revisionism of our history. You know, at the founding, you know, again, to go back to the, and I'm not one of these people who fetishizes the founding, right? I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, we have to do everything like we did in 1787. But I, you know, we didn't have comprehensive immigration laws, right? It's not like, you know, if you came to the United States, you had to, you know, pass a test to become a citizen or something like that, the way that, you know, we, we, we have that today. You know, just people who lived here, who moved here, who lived here, that was the people, right? Um, and when the Constitution said persons, it, 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 it specifically didn't say citizens. I mean, the word citizen does appear in the Constitution elsewhere. So that was a choice, right? Um, but the, the Trump administration wants to change that. And, they, they, you know, not, not just them, but I think a broader kind of nativist movement in this country, like we saw in the 1920s, like we saw in the 1850s, you know, is, I think, very scared of demographic shifts they're scared of people they perceive as the other, and they want to hold on to power however they can. And so despite the fact that it's completely ahistorical um, and contrary to practice throughout centuries of our history, they want to say, oh, well, if you're not a citizen, essentially you're not part of the people. Mm -hmm. um, and okay, maybe we can make an exception for people who are here, who, who, are, who have lawful permanent resident status here, people with green cards, LPRs, we're gonna say, maybe you're kind of, you know, a probationary part of the people, but everyone else, no, you're, you're something else. And whatever legal protections you have, those are gratuities that we can take away at any time. You're not protected under the constitution as part of the people of the United States. And I, I, I think that's, if, if there's a broad principle there, that's, you know, other than just racism, right? I think that's, that's what it is. And that's connected to the idea, the enduring ties argument too, right? Of like, yeah. you know, what does it mean when you come in? I think there was a question um, asked to the, to the newest justice and she was like, seemed to be kind of in favor of, of the argument for immigration. She was like, well, somebody that's been here for 20 years uh, has an enduring tie. It's obvious, right? They are part of the community. They're providing taxes. They're providing uh, housing. They have jobs. That seems obvious. And yet that type of person, if they are undocumented or in their words illegal, then might still not be counted under their... Yes. Tax, right? Right. Two-thirds of undocumented adults have been here for more than a decade. Right. And it's hard. It's hard to think of the word resident. Right. And not include those people. I don't know how you could possibly do that. Now, you know, th there's this case from 1993 where um, 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 some so there was a challenge to the practice of counting federal personnel who are stationed abroad, mostly military and their families. Right. 
And the Supreme Court said it's okay to count those people in the census and as part of the um, division of representation in Congress, because even though they're abroad temporarily, they have an enduring tie there. So here, so the, the notion of enduring tie was meant to be something inclusive, to, to bring people in who are temporarily gone, right? But the administration now wants to come back and say, oh, well, if you're undocumented, it doesn't matter if you've been here for 10 years, you, you don't really have an enduring tie here. Your enduring tie is to somewhere else. And that is not at all how that idea, that concept of tie to a place was, 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 was used in that, that case from 30 years ago. Trivia note, that case that I, I'm mentioning about people um, overseas, that was argued by John Roberts when he was in the Solicitor General's office before um, he became a judge and, and a justice of the Supreme Court. Talking about outside of the scope of the, of the case, but as part of the ACLU, what are you hearing about what all of these attempts by the Trump administration have done to the actual census count over the last year? We have all of these attempts that are, you know, patently racist. We have the COVID-19. We have all these issues. How much are you hearing that it's going to affect the final count potentially of all these undocumented people in the country? You know, it's hard to, it's hard to say exactly. Um, we know it's not good, right? I mean, the census depends upon people having trust in the government and um, trust that whatever answers and information they give to, this, to, the, to the government are gonna be held confidential. And, and by law, they, they must be held confidentially. But when you have an administration that has tried picking up people um, for immigration violations in, 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 in really you know, places that used to be thought of as sanctuaries where you were you know, uh, uh, dropping off your kids at school, right? Or at, at a courthouse, um, places like that, um, it really degrades trust between the public and um, 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 the government. And then you layer on all the sense specific things they're gonna do, the whole citizenship question controversy, we think itself, I mean, the, the administration, they believe that 6 million people wouldn't respond to the census if you had it on there. And there was lots of, news um, around it. Now, the question wasn't ultimately on there, but there was a lot of speculation that maybe the damage had already been done. Now you, in the middle of the census outreach period, you have the administration announcing, we're not gonna count undocumented immigrants at all for purposes of, the main purpose of the census, which is to divvy up representation. Well, if you're undocumented or you live in a mixed status family, or maybe even if you, 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 you know, just have, you know, uh, uh, are, are, are an immigrant or have immigrants in your family, you think this, this just conveys a signal that you don't belong. And that's why we brought the case when we did in kind of a hurry. We were really worried that with, I think at the time, you know, maybe 10 weeks left of census outreach and the numbers being really low in terms of people responding to the census, that um, that policy, if it's just left hanging out there, would deter census participation. And we got it blocked temporarily, but again, I think there's a fear that that message that you don't belong has been conveyed or that you can't trust the government has been conveyed and undoubtedly, you know, probably caused some people um, um, not to participate. And what happens to an immigrant's mindset that's not counted as an American is also essential politically today and in the long term. USC professor of American studies, Natalia Molina, talked about contextualizing the legal and cultural effects of the Trump administration's attack on the census. She told me that they always lead to immigrants of color feeling a sense of separation in their own home, usually through fear. 
forcing them into decades-long decision-making that hurts their health, education, and job prospects. You know, unfortunately, Jose, this is a, a multi-pronged fight. And so during the pandemic, what we're seeing is the way in which immigrants are under assault in so many ways. Uh, just today in the paper, I was reading about how President Trump's limits on immigrants is fueling food lines, that even legal immigrants aren't going to accept government assistance for themselves or for their citizen children because they're afraid this will threaten their chances of getting a green card. So we know that it once we tell immigrants that they don't count, um, undocumented immigrants that they don't count, that it has these ripple effects in the community, not just for them, but their family, their neighborhoods, anybody who's afraid that they can draw attention to their families, even for DACA students. You know, for years, DACA students were told, oh no, please apply, you know, you're eligible, this is safe. And then we had a president that said, we're gonna deport you. So there's a lot of fear out there, and this is uh, especially, especially important during a pandemic. You do not want people to be scared of the government to the point where they do not get the vaccine. Unless a majority of us get the vaccine, we will not develop herd immunity and we will continue to spread this virus. And so there's, there's a lot of in interconnected social, political, economic, and health factors at play here. I want to talk briefly about something, and I'm going to read some of my notes here, about something that seems to be potentially harmful down the road in the administration's argument from what I was hearing. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I didn't understand it right. So you tell me. Uh, the Trump administration wants to know whether it's possible to actually exclude about 10 million people out of 300 million. And part of why they may not be able to do it is because uh, it has to be completed but they say they probably can't do it because it's a complicated thing to separate what was described as a scrambled egg of millions of people by a couple of justices. In other words, it's a hard thing to do technically. But in this podcast, we think about the technological side of what could be done in the future with more efficient tools. So if it's easier in the future to find people in their homes, say through cell phones or some other means, could it still be possible to remove them in the future? What worries you about had the administration's argument coupled with the conservative justices questioning could be used in the future where that tech technical separation could be easier to do? Yeah, that's a that's a concern of mine. Exactly what you're saying. The administration saying, you know, look, we're not necessarily going to exclude all, you know, estimated 10 and a half million to 12 million undocumented immigrants because we can't identify them all in the census. So we're just going to exclude who, who, whomever we can identify. And it's not going to be that many people might not even change representation in Congress because the numbers might end up being so small. But I'm worried about setting a precedent whereby if that gets okayed, then 10 years from now, a different administration that's preparing for it, um, the census, you know, in, in advance more, um, you know, is able ultimately to implement it, right? And that's why I think it's really critical to get the court to say, this is not okay, this kind of policy. Now, it's possible the court's gonna say, I just, we just can't tell exactly what the administration's gonna do. So we want to hold off on any kind of definitive ruling and send, and send us back to the trial court to see what exactly they come up with. And then we'll take it from there and we'll relitigate this in January. Um, starting starting from square one. But um, 
Yeah, I, I am. I am concerned about, you, you know, I, I don't want to just sort of like breathe a sigh of relief because this administration is incompetent, right? Like they can't carry out their evil plans. <laughs> that doesn't mean that they can't do a lot of damage or set some really bad precedents that a more competent but equally, you know, bad intentioned administration in the future could end up doing a lot more damage. Before we get to a future where it is much easier for the government to get every person's data in the country using GPS-enabled triangulation that is now illegal, I wanted to find out about the specific statistics issues experts at the census faced. So I reached out to census officials, but their data analytics officers cannot speak until after the census numbers come out. Instead, I talked to Ness Sandoval, who we heard from earlier. He is the co-director of the PhD program in public conceptual policy at St. Louis University and an expert in spatial inequity, the study of statistics that accurately finds and portrays data in cities without using randomness. Sandoval's insight is that data randomness cannot accurately predict accurate figures in communities, especially those of color. That is, he says, because decades of policies have concentrated inequality in cities on purpose. This work has Gwena McClaim as one of the foremost leaders in understanding demographic changes in America. When we look at maps, we want to map out uh, poverty, we want to map out where uh, Latinos live, where the African-American population lives. And if you follow the basics, uh, basic principles of statistics, we would say, well, based on these ideas of, of statistics, things should be randomly distributed throughout a metropolitan region. And so that's what kind of motivated me to get into this idea of spatial uh, inequality. Because when I grew up in a neighborhood in Nebraska where it was not random. And when I moved to Lincoln, Nebraska for college, I realized my hometown was not unique because it's the same patterns of concentration of disadvantage or the same patterns of uh, residential racial segregation also appeared in Lincoln, Nebraska. And so I started to have this sense like, well, maybe this idea of randomness, it's a, it's a good idea for statistics, but when we try to map out the different dimensions of social and economic life, they are not random. <clears throat> we teach this idea of randomness and we divorce it from the history of policy, which was designed to concentrate disadvantage and so there's a disconnect between our methodological techniques that we use to study urban inequality. Many of the patterns of inequality we see in American cities was deliberate policy that was designed, whether by the federal government, the state, or local governments, to concentrate disadvantage in cities and neighborhoods. And so what we're trying to do now in our projects is I don't want to say we're trying to put a point of finger and saying you're responsible for it, but what we're saying is you can no longer ignore this. Professor Sandoval says many U.S. cities and regions are still using traditional statistics to understand spatial inequality, and that those statistics are biased in a way that, he says, quote, don't tell the magnitude of the concentration of this advantage. One example he uses to explain his work defines segregation based on community resources, like parks investments. In this way, he can dig out the ways white communities use segregation to their advantage. This system is also useful to understand how resources that are supposed to get everyone counted for the census also helped these white communities more than they did communities of color. 
Additionally, it can help us understand how COVID restrictions in the Trump administration's early ending of the count, leading to the census needing to find millions of people using administrative records, like healthcare providers, public education roles, and many others, is also discriminatory. Most of these records often do not accurately reflect a person's, family's, or a whole community's numerical designation, much less their ethnicity. And yet, the census had to use them as a statistical band-aid. It will lead to many, many people not getting counted. We, we have a project in St. Louis about this right now. If you type St. Louis and you type up segregation, if you're, immediately if you go into Wikipedia, they'll, be, they'll talk about the Delmore divide. And that's, that's the popular opinion in the region. The, the divide's there. It's between North and South City. In the North part, it's African-Americans live. In the South part, uh, it's, it's the white population. But if you, if you use spatial statistics, you get a more nuanced understanding of what's happening because they, they always think, well, the divide's the problem. And if we can erase the Dalmore divide, we'll become a more integrated city. When you start to use spatial statistics, you realize there are actually three divides in the city of St. Louis. The other two divides nobody talks about because that's white people, rich white people, who have segregated themselves from everybody else. And they never, you, you'll, you'll be hard pressed to find a newspaper article talking about the white, the rich white people who are segregated. It's always the poor blacks who are segregated. The spatial hierarchy of cities. It's not just about poor, but it's about the rich as well who are controlling resources to their advantage spatially. And it's by keeping out low income housing by not putting an exit into the neighborhood from the interstate, by different types of zoning laws that are in place. But what's talked about in the public is the concentration of disadvantage. I see this in Atlanta. We see it in Los Angeles, um, Houston, um, the San Francisco Bay Area. And you start to realize something as simple as a park, you see inequalities where um, in the poor neighborhoods that are segregated, they have parks but the parks are really bad quality. There's not really a master plan for the parks. The, the diversity of vegetation is at a, as a minimum. But then you go to these areas that are segregated, but they're rich white people, and these parks have master plans. There's economic investment to make sure that the trees are diverse. There's diverse vegetation. The city's making that investment in those parks. And they decided not to invest in the parks in the other areas. In fact, in the other areas, they will make the argument is because of crime. They don't want to have a lot of trees in these parks because of crime. And so you just get a bunch of green space, <laughs> mm. green lawn, and no trees. Um, because they're like, the trees are, are hiding criminal activity. How can science be applied to the census in terms of statistical modeling? The census is trying to do the best it can in the current conditions that we're in to be as transparent with their data. <clears throat> Over the past 15 years, 20 years, they have been making efforts to make the data available to everybody. What has happened though is that the level of technology that's accessible today to you and me can be abused. We have some bad actors out there. When you and I complete the census, this past census, they were giving us the data at the block level. 
like this is the number of people at the block. This is the number of Hispanics, number of Blacks, this is the age. And so what was happening is with the mathematical algorithms and the data, and because it's all spatial now, is that you are able to get, use that census data and then integrate it with some other data that are, are out there and then identif possibly identify people at the block group level who completed the census. And that's a no-no because the census is saying that it's confidential. We don't want you to do this. And it's even more, more applicable because of the American Community Survey. And this is what you know, the Supreme Court uh, issued the ruling today about, um, about the immigration question on the census. That, you know, people are answering that question on the American Community Survey, and we can get that data down to um, what's publicly available down to the census track. Well, what, what some people can try to do is they take that data and say, well, we think that this household is the immigrant based on data from school districts, based on data from uh, public and local sources. And then they're trying to triangulate the data to identify people. This was not possible 15, 20 years ago, but we have the technology today to do this um, because we, our computer power is cheap memory's cheap. And so the census is going to try to give us as much data as possible so we can map it out and kind of see what's happening block by block. But they, they also have to protect those who completed the census with the understanding that at no time would their identity be exposed. This census was completed with administrative records because of COVID. They couldn't go out. So they used and this is why I think the government was trying to close the census very early because they're like, we don't really want to go count people. <laughs> We're going to use the administrative records to count people because in the administrative records, you have these other ways to tie in this data. And so that was that's my hunch of why there was not urgency among the administration to go actually count people. Taxes, so Medicaid, Medicare, school, school district. Yeah. And so if you if you looked at when the decision was made to extend it, um, there are huge gaps in terms of every state in terms of, of completing the census. Then all of a sudden, those gaps closed. They closed not because people were going and doing interviews face-to-face. -face. They closed because the administration was using the administrative records to close out those cases. And so an example would be, like in my household, for example, if I had not completed my census, they could have said, well, Ness Sandoval, we have his administrative records for uh, Medicare. So we don't need him to complete the census. We're just going to get his administrative records. He lives at this house. That's missing. Let's close it. And we're just going to use his Medicaid record as part of the census. Mm -hmm. We don't know to the extent what the implication is, but for an example, my Medicaid record would have said I'm white because that's what it says not Latino. So I would have been classified as white in the 2020 census. And then I'm fairly positive because um, my wife and my children are not on that record. They would have not been counted in the 2020 census. So instead of five, pe five people being counted in my household, only one person would have been counted. So that would have been an undercount of four people. And so I think that this is, and, and we know in Louisiana, because of the hurricanes, they didn't even get a 100% count from the administrative records.
I don't think we're truly ever going to understand the magnitude of what happened with the 2020 census. I, we just know it's going to be really bad. It's going to be a tremendous undercount. I believe in the month of September, um, between five to eight million, five to eight million households were, were counted using administrative records, which is a lot. To make it seem like the separation of the census likely wasn't that big a deal, Trump lawyers spent a lot of time avoiding answering a fundamental question. Would separating the data lead to massive changes in congressional representation? Check out this exchange between Jeffrey Wall, the acting solicitor general for the Department of Justice back in November, and Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Mr. Wall, um, as I understand and read the memo, the president's memo, he says he intends to exclude every alien who does not have uh, permission to be here in the United States. Now, yes, he limits this to where it's feasible to identify that. But right now, his policy is, if I can identify them, no matter what the reason is for them being an illegal alien, I'm going to exclude them from the census. Following up on Justice Alito's question, aren't those the very categories that you already say that we've been told there have been some of them who's in ICE is going to come by December 31st. And then by January 11th, the Census Bureau says that it intends to provide the president with the information, quote, necessary to fully implement the presidential memorandum. I'm quoting the Census Bureau. So if I take that at its face, it means that the number is not going to be 60,000. The number intended is substantially large. And I think that was Justice Alito's point, which is the Census Bureau has been collecting data about undocumented immigrants from any other agencies for over a year. I don't see how you can represent to us that you don't think it's going to be a substantial number. Uh, three quick points, Justice Sotomayor. First, I, that's, I, I don't think that's actually an accurate statement of the memorandum. You're certainly right that that's the policy, but there are two built-in limitations. One is whether it's feasible, and the second is whether the president decides that he has the legal discretion to exclude all of these subsets. And the subsets might have different legal analysis depending on the kind of ties they have or the type of uh, status they, they, they have. But the second, the Mr. Second Wall, I, I, I'm a little bit questioning of that for the following reason. The Census Bureau already defines what residency is, where you're living as a snapshot date of April 1st, 2020. Now, whether you're in a prison, in ICE uh, detention, we're told by one of our amici that 57% of the people in detention will eventually be released to the United States, either through asylum or through some other mechanism. So I am not sure how you can identify any class of immigrant that isn't living here in its traditional sense. That this is where they are, this is where they were on April 1st, um, and where they intend to stay if they can find any way to do it. 
While most immigrants can be identified through administrative records, as Justice Sotomayor stated, it is also not a task that is absolute. Many cities, counties, and states have created laws that prevent federal agencies like the census from identifying all immigrants through docs such as their DMV records. Jose Perez notes the broad scope of this issue and how it has led to political battles in his state. Trump directed to the extent federal agencies can determine, collect information on who's undocumented. Well, there are certain sources of information where they know all the folks, immigrants who are in removal proceedings, folks that are in det immigration detention. Um, we now know that they've shared this information. Folks who had applied to U, uh, U.S. Citizenship Immigration Services for DACA, Deferred Action, all the DREAMers who got deferred action, folks with TPS, Temporary Protected Status. All these folks don't, don't have re uh, permanent legal status, right? But they're in this kind of deferred interim status. And also through those states that issue driver's licenses, like say New York is in a, a prime example. Last year, we passed what's called a green light law that permitted for the first time in gee, 20 years that non-citizens or undocumented folks could apply for a driver's license, that there were various other forms of identification that they could provide that would meet the points requirement of uh, acceptable identi ident identity documents that would prove their identity. This came up in the context here in New York last year because under New York's law, the Department of Motor Vehicles cannot share or publicly provide that information. And there were upstate county clerks um, who processed driver's licenses who didn't like that, that they couldn't share or alert ICE or Immigration's Customs Enforcement that, gee, they had illegals or undocumented folks applying for licenses and they could not publicly uh, share that information. And so it was a distortion of really the real reason for driver's licenses is to permit folks, you know, accessibility, economic mobility, being able to drive your family, uh, your kids to school, family to go to your place of worship, um, to take your, for medical emergencies or doctor's appointments. Again, that, you know, not every, I, I'm spoiled. I live in New York. I live in Manhattan, New York City. I have public transport. No, not, I don't know. It's a different story nowadays, but, you know, we have public transportation. There are trains, there are buses. This is not the case for much of the country, and particularly once you get out of urban areas. So having the ability to drive without the fear of being stopped or ticketed and potentially arrested in any contact with criminal justice clearly could have devastating collateral consequences if you're undocumented. So this is the climate that we're in. Trump issues this directive, try to collect this information. Some states shall remain aimless or more than willing to try to provide this information. Other states, New York was one of those, no, no way in heck are we going to cooperate or share or give you any information. What came out of that day for you from your argument and from the argument from the administration side, how strong do you think is their case, especially what we just discussed in terms of the historical president and how strong is yours? I think their case is, is extremely weak. And I was heartened to see that a number of the more conservative justices seem to suggest the same thing. Like Amy Coney Barrett, the newest justice on the court, had a few comments where she seemed to express a lot of skepticism towards their opinion. Brett Kavanaugh did as well. Um, so that that's heartening to me. You know, they, they, these are justices who claim to take history seriously, and it's hard to take what the government's arguing seriously from, an, you know, in, a, in, in, a, in a historical context. Um, so I feel really good about where the court is on the constitutionality of what this administration is trying to do. That is, they'll find it unconstitutional if they, you know, reach that question. And they might not because they might decide there's too much uncertainty 
about what exactly the administration is going to do. They can't. They say they can't identify many undocumented immigrants. We don't know who they're going to identify. Maybe different subgroups can be treated differently under the law. Right now, you know, stu- different groups of students who are away from home get treated differently. College students get counted in college towns, but high school and younger kids in boarding school get counted with their parents. And maybe there's some flexibility with certain populations. And we don't know what populations the administration is going to actually target. It's possible the, the, the court could say, we, we just don't know. We think it's too uncertain. There shouldn't be a ruling now. Go back to the trial court when we know exactly what they're going to do and, 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 and do it all over again. Um, so that's possible. But I feel very confident that they're not going to just say, this is okay, that it's okay to just exclude all undocumented immigrants from the count. And, and, and that, that's good. And I think that's a sign that as difficult as it's going to be for civil rights in this court, um, for the foreseeable future, there are some issues that we can continue to win on. And so the court on December 18th, as we noted, did rule on the case, saying there was not enough information to decide on whether the memo was constitutional or not. It's a delay that Ho and the three dissenting justices said was unnecessary. Justice Stephen Breyer said the ruling, quote, risks a needless and costly delays in apportionment. This is the continuation of his quote. Whereas here, the government acknowledges it is working to achieve an allegedly illegal goal, this court should not decline to resolve the case simply because the government speculates that it might not fully succeed. Responding to the ruling, Dale Ho said in a statement that, quote, This ruling does not authorize President Trump's goal of excluding undocumented immigrants from the census camp used to apportion the House of Representatives. If this policy is actually implemented, he continued, we'll be right back in court challenging it. I want to uh, turn away from the case and focus on you uh, a little bit and your career. You were telling me before we started recording that you grew up in the Bay Area. I believe you grew up in San Jose. Yeah. So tell me about, tell me about, a little bit about how you grew up and what growing up in the Bay Area in a very diverse community was like for you and how that informed your mind and your heart too, maybe, about how, about what to think about civil rights, about other ethnicities, about your own family's place in this country. So it's, it's a huge part of my identity. Um, growing up in the, having grown up in the Bay Area, um, I still think of myself as like a Bay Area person, even though I've been living in New York pretty much for um, over 20 years now. Um, as we were joking around before, still a huge Ace fan. Um, it's you know, I, I I was in high school when the when Prop 187 passed. Back to politics now, and another big sign of voter discontent this year: a record number of individual issues placed directly on the ballot. One of the most controversial, California's immigration initiative, Proposition 187. More now from NBC's George Lewis. The initiative, which would deny schooling and other social services to illegal immigrants, sparked student protests again today in Los Angeles. And in San Francisco, where marchers converged on City Hall. Police agencies in Southern California have gone on tactical alert in case the demonstrations, which have been peaceful so far, turn violent. Over the last 10 days, uh, we've had uh, literally hundreds of protests. Uh, There is great sensitivity. Proposition 187 has polarized voters in this state who are either strongly for the measure or strongly against it. I feel like that was a big moment in my political awakening because I sort of like intuitively 
felt like it was wrong and couldn't really articulate it. And then when we started talking about the, when I started learning about kind of the practical impact of it and how it in almost every case would do the opposite of what the proponents of it were hoping for. Like proponents would be like, ah, you know, in their words, illegal immigration costs us so much money, blah, 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 blah. And then you, you learn that actually implementing Prop 187 would be like kind of disastrous fiscally, right? And like, you know, cause people to like do things like forego medical care and end up in emergency rooms ultimately in the in the long run. And, you know, all just just every social ill that the proponents of Prop 187 were, were, were claiming to care about they would actually be contributing to by stigmatizing and demonizing undocumented immigrants. And that's for me, like when I started realizing like, you know, it's not that there are sort of like two kind of coherent, like well thought out positions on, on, on an issue like this, right? There's, there's one that is like consistent with like my values and, 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 you know, civil rights and treating everyone with basic dignity. Um, and, and, and there's one that, you know, seems to be rooted in just just pure irrational hatred, uh, prejudice, xenophobia, and racism. And it's not like there are like sort of like pros and cons here, you know, in terms of other kinds of policy issues like the fiscal impacts. And that was, you know, I don't know, as a teenager, you know, growing up, that was, you know, I think just kind of like a light bulb moment for me, you know, and recognizing that a lot of the fights of, you know, the past that you learn about in schools, about uh, in school, about civil rights, they were very much alive with us today. And I went to a high school that very much valued, um, um, you know, conversation and work in social justice. We had like a community service requirement of, you know, 100 hours before graduation, which, you know, actually is not very much when you think about it. Um, but <laughs> as a teenager, it felt like a lot because you wanted to be going to parties and whatnot, right? But Which high school did you um, go to? I went to Bellarmine in San Jose. Oh, very um, cool. yeah. I know. I know. Yeah. And, you know, I, so, it, you know, and, you know, it's, it was a school with a very large Asian American, very large Latinx um, 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 populations. And it was, it was, you know, I mean, not as diverse as the Bay, right. But certainly more so than um, a lot of environments that I've been in since. And I think that really inculcated um, uh, an appreciation for difference in me and a commitment to social justice and civil rights and racial justice in particular. And I, I, I've tried to carry that with me over the last, you know, 25 years since high school. When, where's your, your family from? Were they, are you second, third uh, generation? Yeah, it's kind of, it's, uh, it's, it's not a neat um, story. Um, you know, my great grandfather on my mother's side came over from the Philippines and then, you know, he brought over one of his daughters who had been left behind in the Philippines. And then um, she brought over one of her nieces. Um, and, and that's my mom. Right. So when I, when I'm calculating from that side of my family, I'm like, third, first, what, I don't know. Right. Like, yeah. you know, three generations of, of immigrants on, on that side. And then my dad came over, um, for, for grad school. He's ethnically Chinese, but he was also from the Philippines. Um, so he and my mom, um, both grew up in Manila, um, but came over at different points in, in their lives. My mom right before high school and my dad, um, after college, um, and they met at Cal in the I house. That's um, really, that's incredible. 
Yeah. yeah. My mom was apparently like, you know, some kind of official social chair of the I house and was like organizing the parties. And my dad apparently would like never come out of his room because he was studying all the time. And she like made him come out to parties. And that's how they, oh, that's, that's, how they met. that's very sweet. <laughs> what else do you think is important for people to know before we go about this particular case and about the issues that the Trump administration has brought up a lot of them up against uh, immigration. We've had the wall. Then we're going to move on to a Biden administration. What do you see as what might happen over the next couple of months and maybe the next couple of years as we go through that transition? And from the civil rights perspective about what is that going to mean for immigrants, Latinx immigrants and all types of other immigrants? I mean, I think, you know, I'm exhaling with relief like a lot of people are. Um, about um, the end of this administration and, and, and a new one coming in. But I really think that we have long, a long-term problem in this country um, with uh, a, a nativist backlash that we're gonna be contending with for some time. I had sort of hoped that we would get this kind of grand repudiation of Trumpism and we got something a little more complicated now. And when you just see you know, large swaths of the country just refusing to accept the legitimacy of this election, right? It's almost as if, you know, and, and, and you look at where they're focused, right? You, they're focused on places like Philadelphia, Detroit, Milwaukee, Atlanta, these majority or plurality black cities, which if anything, actually voted a little less for the Democrat this time, right? Like Trump gained in those cities compared to where he did in 2016. It's like the, the, the suburbs of those cities that are actually quite white that swung dramatically away from Trump towards the Democratic candidate. And yet you get these nativists, you know, you know um, um, hardcore right of the Republican party um, putting all the blame on these, on these black cities, claiming there's fraud, claiming their votes are illegitimate. And I just, you know, I think as this country gets more diverse, there's just this notion that um, is is taking root in parts of the Republican Party and not just sort of at the margins, but within the mainstream of the party that it's inherently illegitimate, right? That there's something un-American about black and brown and other people of color um, and their votes are illegitimate. And you'll see this concerted effort, I think, to try to, as as we become, and I don't like this term, but I'll just use it, a majority-minority country, right? Like a, a country where majority of the people are people of color. Um, this, this effort to hang on to, I think, what will be white minority rule um, at some point. You see it with, you know, the Electoral College, you know, around by 2040, we'll be this majority-minority country, but we'll also be a, 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 a projected anyway to be a place where 70% of the population lives in just 15 states, right? Um, that's crazy in terms of what that'll mean for the Senate, in terms of what that'll mean for the Electoral College. Um, and it will be in these disproportionately white, disproportionately rural areas where there's a, you know um, disproportionate political power. And, and we're gonna have a reckoning um, as a country at, at that point, you know, and whether or not we really truly believe in democracy and the equal worth of every individual or something different. And it, it, it does make me a little unsettled um, when I think about decades from now. 
I also wanted to ask our other guests what they thought about the end of the Trump presidency, Joe Biden, and what regular people should do concerning the census in the following year. Whether that is continually being aware of what's going on, like listening to something like this podcast, or possibly helping their communities redraw the maps. I think the one positive we can take from this election, more people came, despite all the politics and the shenanigans and, and the rhetoric, more people came out to vote than ever before. That is phenomenal. More Latinos came out to vote than ever before. That is the real story. So Latinos are finally mobilizing, they're coming out to vote. How do we capitalize on that? How do we grow from that? Well, redistricting next year, right? Get engaged, you know, on the voting rights scenario, even if you're undocumented or you're a dreamer, you have DACA, who in your family or your friends or your uh, classmates or coworkers or in your community, can they register to vote? That's the greatest privilege that any American, any citizen in our country could do. And redistricting, however your state does it, is it an independent redistricting commission? Is it a legislative commission? voice, get out there, organize with your community. Um, if you're permitted to draw maps, work with or work with groups that do this, like Latino Justice. We have here in New York a unity coalition. We work with the African American and Asian American community. We work together. We want to we want to present a unified voice. We don't want to franchise one at the expense of the other. Work together, work collectively present, get those nuances, preserve communities of interest together and present those maps and advocate for that. These are how lines should be drawn. So if they want to have a voice, this is their country. This is their democracy. They need to be engaged and have a voice in that, particularly young people. If you want to call out, you know, high school kids, um, you know, many states you can now register before you turn 18, you know, you're 17. You want to have a say. You don't want to be there complaining, same old, same old, if you didn't get up off your ass and do something about it. We are hoping for, you know, something better in this new administration. You know, nobody's letting their guard down. Everybody's, uh, you know, wanting to make sure that that these policies continue to be pressed. Uh, when we look at something like DACA, uh, you know, we know that it's going to be reinstated. But, you know, DACA is also a Band-Aid solution. Is it going to stay the defanged policy that it is? Or are they going to institutionalize it? Um, how are we going to make sure that the new administration ensures that immigrants are protected from deportation and ICE? We know that the, there were those sterilizations happening in that Georgia ICE detention center. What happened? You know, so I think a lot of it is, okay, great, great news. What else? What's next? Uh, where, where's the next fight? And now we have a brief interview with Lara Manzanares, a self-described Chicana with a gringa side from New Mexico who worked as an enumerator 10 years ago and wrote a fun and quirky song about the census that got some attention early last year as census workers got going all around the country. Stay on to listen to her song at the end of our combo. We have Lara Manzanares, who is a musician, and we found her census song on YouTube and we were really excited about it because we were certain that there would be somebody who'd have an artistic connection to the census. And when we found out about it, we were like, we have to get in touch with Lara. So Lara, let's start by talking about the song. Tell us about the inspiration behind it. Well, I was a census taker. I was an enumerator uh, in 2010 is when I originally wrote the song. I didn't record it until 2017. Um, but I wrote it as a census taker. I'm from New Mexico, but I was living in San Francisco at the time. 
So I was walking uh, from house to house and that's when I write songs is when I'm walking. And um, so that song sort of developed during my time as a census taker, uh, meeting all kinds of different people in San Francisco. And it was always interesting to see, uh, you know, how people identified themselves. It kind of comes from, from real life. You know, there's a, there's a verse in the song or the chorus, I guess, that says, hey, my name is John Doe. There is actually someone who gave his name to me as John Doe. You know, there's um, there were people who didn't want to open the door, who maybe they were afraid or any number of reasons, you know. And uh, and I I understood that. There's some person knocking on your door. Who is it? I don't, I don't you know, I don't want to open the door or whatnot. And so I approached the job, though, as I was part of the neighborhood. These were my neighbors that I was going to see. And so the song was just kind of like a playful way of looking at it as something that is, you know, not scary. It's just maybe it can be fun. Maybe it's boring. You know, maybe they didn't want to answer the door just because it was a hassle. I don't know. Um, and so I, I just try to make things fun for myself by creating this song and singing it to myself as I was walking. And then seven years later, um, when I got into music more seriously, then I recorded it and got a bunch of people to to come on with me and, and sort of be the, the crowd, be the populace <laughs> in the last part of the song. Did you find anything during your time as an enumerator that you didn't expect? Well, there were a couple of sort of things that could have been close calls in, you know, sort of like a dangerous way, I suppose. And that was something I wasn't really expecting. Uh, but overall, I was sort of pleasantly surprised. It seemed like there was a pattern. It seemed like the less people had, the friendlier they were. Because <laughs> um, I had a couple of neighborhoods. I was in the Mission and Bernal Heights and Noe Valley. And so I, I felt less welcome at the, this isn't 100%, but at, at in the neighborhoods where there seemed to be more security and less people, they were a little bit more uh, tougher to crack. And then myself, and also I talk about this with my enumerator friends, there were other places, maybe down in the mission, where maybe there's two or three families living in in a place, and and we'd get invited in and offered cafe or you know <laughs> uh, little kids running around, and it was just it was interesting to see that contrast. Did you see any differences between how Latinos and non-Latinos? approached or were or felt approached by the enumerators like yourself? Did you face resistance, especially in the mission? Yes and no. <laughs> I mean, you know, another thing that I found as a census taker was that there is no 100% of anything, 100%. I don't mean ethnicity. I mean, like, ways people respond. People are very individual. Uh, but I did, I encountered Yes, um, resistance at times or just fear, you know, fear from the Latino community at times. My ability to speak Spanish, I think, helped with that. And there was one gentleman who actually ran away from me <laughs> on the sidewalk. 
because I had visited his, his, his residence before and nobody was home or something. And, you know, we, we leave note, we leave a note and it says officially, like we're from the census, you know, um, call us or whatever. So I think he knew that I was around and, and I was walking down the sidewalk near where his apartment was. And, and I, I saw him, I would seen him come in and out, kind of knew who he, he was more or less. And I saw him and, and he was walking toward me on the street and we met and I, I was kind of like, oh, hey, you know, well, I, I can do my, my interview now, you know, I was just with a smile like, oh, hey, and he saw me and he just like, boom, <laughs> he turned and he ran. And I thought, man, I'm like, I get it. I get it. But also it was, it was, it made the job interesting. That's for sure. Yeah, and it was it was someone in that same building that gave me John Doe as their name. <laughs> yeah. What made you decide to want to be an enumerator for the census in the first place? And following up that question, how much did you know about the census and its importance while you were growing up in your community? Well, I decided to be an enumerator. Part of it was out of necessity. I was in grad school. I was in design school. And uh, I needed a job in the summer, you know, something that was flexible, something that would allow me to go out and meet people and hear their stories and, uh, and continue to do my other thing that I love to do, which was go out and sing on the streets, go out and busk. Um, I did a lot of busking that summer as well, mostly corridos and rancheras and the music that I grew up with, which, you know, I'd make a few dollars and then go to the taqueria and get dinner. You know, that was sort of my other side job. And so it seemed to fit really well with this working on the census and doing that, just being out on the street, meeting people, talking to them, hearing their stories and connecting with them. As a kid, I didn't really know what the census was other than what you hear like in church, you know, around Christmas where the Holy Family, they're going to go get counted. So I knew that it was a thing, but I didn't really know what it was. I grew up in a super, super rural area, extremely rural. And I don't remember anyone ever coming to our house. If the forms came to in the mail, I don't remember anyone ever talking about it or maybe my parents filled them out and just didn't say anything. So I, I didn't really have any knowledge or consciousness about the census as a kid, I, it was one of those things that you'd see on TV as happening. New Mexico is sometimes a little bit like its own country. And so there were things like the census or other things that you, we would, you know, see on TV as happening. But that was like, uh, yeah, that was like over there. I hadn't really ever experienced it until I started working for the census. So you said that you, you became a little bit more serious about your music a few years ago. Tell us about that and how you've incorporated some of your experiences. And also, that's really interesting that you studied design. Have you brought in a lot of what you learn in design into your music somehow? Yes, I think I have brought it into my music, not in a maybe intentional, like, this is design and I'm going to put design in the music, but it's just it's part of who I am, you know, the way that I think. And the experiences that I've had as a designer uh, before I moved back to New Mexico, I moved back to New Mexico um, from San Francisco. I was I was very sick and I couldn't work for a while, so that sort of shifted my whole focus. I had been in 
interactive design. I was an instructional designer for a while, but since I've been back in New Mexico, I've been more focused on music. And I have one album out right now. You can find it on my website at laramansanares.com. And I'm working on figuring out how to do another one right now. Oh, one more thing about the song, just real quick. So in the chorus, this person who's John Doe, it says, my name is John Doe, my race is Alaska Native and Latino. I chose that because I encountered different combinations of ethnicities that people had in themselves, and they would tell me, and I would put that into the form. And I kept waiting for someone to say to identify as Alaska Native, because that was just the box that never got checked. And it's San Francisco. And there's a lot of different kinds of people here. And, and so that was a combination that Alaska Native and Latino, that in my mind was like on the form, that's one that no one ever, that's a combination of ethnicities that no one that I interviewed ever said that they were. So that was like the unicorn for me, you know, it was like, yeah. So you created it instead of finding it on the... Yeah, yeah, I created it sort of, you know, as I'm just waiting for you to say, hey, you know, I'm this person, I'm Alaska Native and Latino. Like, um, so that that was, that was, that was just, just a little in, inside thing. That's awesome because, you know, it's it's the type of thing where I'm sure that there is somebody out there that is that... And that's the point, is that everybody has a specific story and um, and they all should be represented. Well, Lara, thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much. Hey, you, please open the door. I can't wait anymore. My poor feet are aching. Hey, you, I can see your light on. I got something to write on. Is alive.
is Donald. Guess I'll see you tomorrow. Hey, my name is Charlie. I live in a cabin. I race in the That is today's episode of the Tequeria Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something new. I'd like to thank our guests, including ACLU Civil Rights Director Dale Ho, Professors Natalia Molina and Nes Sandoval, and Latino Justice Counsel Jose Perez. Look for an additional conversation on YouTube with a Tequeria community member, Amalia Torres, talking about how she was one of the enumerators last summer and how difficult it was day to day. Neil Godbole produced this podcast at the Airship Laboratory Studio for Points of Presence Media, and I'm the host, reporter, and story editor. We want to remind you to please take a few minutes of your day to review and rate the podcast on the podcast platform of your choice, and if possible, do let your friends and family know about it through social media. If you let us know, we'll retweet and repost your comments. We'd really appreciate that. And, of course, if you're a member of a company who you think would be a great advertising partner, please let us know at contact at pointsofpresence.io and you can also connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, or email, which you can find on social media. If you haven't heard any of the previous podcasts, we invite you to do so. We work very hard at Points of Presence to bring you a new perspective on underrepresented communities. Hope your new year is starting off well. Take care and see you at the Tequeria.